welcome to episode three of Shallow Dive with me, Murray. And me, Alex. And this is your uh, weekly political discussion show. Yeah. And uh, what a week, what a day it has been <laughs> for politics. It's reshuffle day, it's Thursday the 13th. My favourite day of the week. And uh, RIP Sajid Javid's career. He's gone. We're sad for you, The Sajid. best chancellor in this country's history. And I'm quoting his mother there, and she knew A reliable source in all political matters. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Alex, tell us more about it. Who's in, who's out? Yeah, so uh, Sajid is out. Uh, he made a brave stand after his um, uh, Cummings told him he had to... Sorry, <laughs> slip of the tongue. Johnson told him <laughs> he had to <laughs> sack all of his special advisers. It's good that he found his principles the second time that this happened, yeah. given that he <laughs> was forced to sack his chief special advisor a few months ago. Well, was sacked without his even knowing, wasn't it? Yeah, Which yeah, was yeah. Even yeah. Worse At some point, I've got to say, you know, if, if your boss keeps on telling you to sack all your advisors, I mean, maybe it's a problem with the employee, not the employee's advisors. I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe he finally decided that. Anyway, yeah. yes, um, the son of a bus driver is out and has been replaced by a different former banker, uh, Rishi Sunak, um, son of a GP. And his wife's father is an Indian billionaire, mm -hmm. so he knows how to deal with money. Yeah. A good qualification for Chancellor. Got a sneaky sneak preview of his CV. Mm -hmm. This is a shallow dive exclusive. Go for it. It says political experience, absolutely none. <laughs> and, uh, MP since 2015, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, subtitle, bit of a nobody. Yeah. I'm happy to be a stooge of any <laughs> kind of blonde prime minister. It's it's seen as he's going to be a bit of a yes man. Yeah. So there's nothing getting in the way of Cummings, I mean Boris's <laughs> plans to rejuvenate the country with Level spend, spend, spend. North. Level up everywhere. But maybe that's good. Maybe we'll get the spending on infrastructure we need. Yeah, and uh, in other cabinet appointments, um, Julian Smith is out as Northern Ireland Secretary. Um, probably the best Northern Irish Secretary we've had for a long time. Yeah, it was so praised by the Irish Taoiseach. Yep. T-shock, I, I think, Murray. <laughs> I pronounce it the English way, proudly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Great. Um, and new Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox is out. Yep. Replaced by... Suella Braverman. I love the way you knew her name straight <laughs> off there, Murray. <laughs> Uh, I know my cabinet ministers, yeah, 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 yeah. new and old. But um, there's already a piece up in the mirror about her controversial previous comments uh, mm -hmm. on the judiciary. Um, she thinks uh, the judiciary should have less say on government policy. And that leads us perfectly in to our main segment this week. Let's go. So, for our first segment this week, we are looking at the topic of justice. Nicely set up by Murray in our intro there. There is, um, have been moves all around the world in recent months to weaken the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law, which is a worrying development everywhere. Why are... Are you, are you worried, Murray? I am. Although, from what I hear from the many autocratic leaders that I talk to, yeah. um, that these, these judiciaries sources. are quite pesky things. Is that not the case? Hot take. Anyway, <laughs> this week has seen <laughs> um, dramatic interventions from Donald Trump into the uh, trial of Roger Stone. This week, it was time for his sentencing uh, hearing. The um, Justice Department in the US submitted sentencing recommendations, recommending that he be um, 
locked up for seven to nine years. Mm -hmm. Which was actually quite low for the crimes he committed. Yes. Already. Um, And then Trump tweeted about it, saying that he didn't like that. And then the Justice Department withdrew their recommendation about the sentencing length. Now, I think that's what we call a coincidence. Indeed, yes. And then, coincidentally, right after that, all the prosecutors in the case resigned at the same time. Mm. Um, a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, you know, it's just... Looks, looks bad, but I'm sure there's nothing there. Yeah, really. On that lack of a bombshell. <laughs> so, essentially, Trump has interfered with the judicial process in the US, right? Well, the judges, the judges will be the one ultimately determining Roger Stone's sentence. But he has been, it's political interference into the Justice Department, certainly, given that these, you know, different judges take different degree of note of these recommendations from the Justice Department about how long these people should serve time. But generally, they look at them quite carefully and see what the Justice Department has to say. Um, so they can have quite a lot of influence on the sentences that these people get. And um, so, yeah. But Trump hasn't done anything um, illegal here or anything, has he? Because the public prosecution that is taking Roger Stone to court is an arm of the, the executive, right? Yes. Right. So that's uh, clear. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding from, uh, from when I've talked to other people about this. Yeah. Yeah. No. So we should be clear. So this is you know, much in the same way that Trump fired James Comey and obviously... He's perfectly within his legal right to fire James Comey mm-hmm. under the Constitution and under all U.S. law. He is perfectly within his right to um, tweet uh, about something being unfair. And then Attorney General William Barr is perfectly within his legal rights to then direct his underlings at the Justice Department to withdraw their recommendation. The controversy is just about the political interference into the case, really. So it's his, about his motivations. And, yeah, and the, yeah. Cr- the sort of cronyism of it, right? Yes. Roger Stone, yeah. a long, long-time ally. Yeah. So we should out. go into uh, what Roger Stone was convicted of. Yes, some quite serious charges, right? Yeah. So he was convicted of obstructing a congressional investigation, lying to the FBI, and of witness intimidation. Do you know quite in de- exactly how he intimidated witnesses? There was a threat of physical violence? Towards a dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's just too far. A fluffy white dog, Bianca, mm. um, the dog of comedian, um, longtime conspiracy theorist, and occasional political activist Randy Credico. Um, what What was the link? So Randy, this was all to do with the um, Russia investigation into potential Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Roger Stone on the sometimes acting alone, sometimes acting on behalf of the Trump campaign, made repeated attempts to get in touch with Julian Assange, um, head of WikiLeaks, who was in possession of a number of emails that the Russians had hacked from the Democratic campaign. Mm-hmm. Randy Credico, a friend of Roger Stone's, repeatedly claimed to be a, um, a friend of Assange's. So was an intermediary of Roger Stone to get to Assange. That's what the two claim anyway. Um, when Randy Credico was being talking to Mueller and his investigators, Roger Stone was threatening to um, do nasty things to his dog. Mm. So this guy deserves a life behind bars. Exactly, is what you're you saying. know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is just uh, this is another norm that Trump has sort of smashed through. Yeah. That he likes to do almost sort of every two days now. Yeah. 
but so these prosecutors, they resigned. I was wondering, is this one of those where resigning in principle, all well and good, blah, 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 pat yourself mm. on the back. But uh, is, is Trump now able to just appoint prosecutors that will just f follow his commands? Probably. I mean, uh, but it depends on if you can find people who are that craven. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, sure they're about. <laughs> I think it's an open question in that, you know, previously... The idea behind this kind of thing is that you resign and that causes a political scandal and causes political damage mm, to the yeah. president. I don't know if that holds true anymore, <laughs> yeah. given that by the time of November and the presidential election, I think it's unlikely people will be remembering this incident, mm -hmm. which is bad, um, but I don't know what what we can do to fix mm. that. It's, it's, yeah, it is uh, features like this that make me say, thank God our system's not like America over here mm. in the UK, but For now. there have been some uh, some murmurs, some movements about shaking up the, the role of the judiciary, especially when it comes to judging decisions made by the government. Because at the moment we have a process in the UK called judicial review, yeah. which essentially means the court can rule on whether government action is legal. This is, you know, to stop the government doing terrible things. The government has the right to imprison people, to deport people, you know, to uh, quarantine people. Uh, we've seen with, with Corona this week. You know, the, the government has a lot of powers and the judiciary is the arm that regulates and makes sure there's no abuse of that power. Yeah. Um, so obviously we've uh, had um, four, five years of a pretty chaotic government with slim to no majorities mm. in which Parliament can act as an effective check on the government. Um, mm. But in normal times, um, it's we have to look to other places to do that. Yeah. And often that's the courts that fulfill that role. Famously, the Supreme Court last year ruled against prorogation, said it wasn't lawful, yeah. null and void. Yeah. And this angered a lot of people. It was seen as the politicization of the judiciary. So there's now going to be a commission set up. Uh, Boris is going to set it up. That mm. is going to look into whether to curb this power of a judicial review of whether um, the government action in itself, because the government is the appointed lawmaker mm. or, you know, a law developer of the land has to be voted through, but, you know, they design the laws. I love this idea of appointing a commission just to uh, decide, come to the conclusion that you've already reached, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. a great Let's idea. Let's find some evidence yeah. to support what we say. Wish I could do that. <laughs> you don't believe me? Fine. I'm appointing a commission to agree with me. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but it does throw up some, you know, there are some occasional problems with it. If a government wants to put through a policy... Mm and the judiciary or someone launches a judicial review mm. that sort of says this new policy would contravene a previous law, mm. you know, it's, it's sort of undermining what the government can do. The government is there to make new policies. Mm. It's democratically elected to do so. Yeah. And so being stopped by the unelected judiciary based on previous laws of previous governments, it's sort of, um, sometimes it seems a bit oxymoronic, right? To uh, yeah, well, at the same time, I think we should be clear about what exactly is happening here and that um, the government can always pass a new law to override previous laws. Mm. So if they are able to do that, then there's no problem, right? The issue is when it comes to interpreting existing law. Mm. If the government's actions in executing and implementing a law actually contravene the law. Yeah. So that's, the only time, as I understand it, where judicial review can be applied, unless it's human rights legislation or constitutional legislation, which mm -hmm. can sometimes be above that. Like the Human Rights Act can be used to disapply laws because it's seen as like a, an, 
a higher level of law. Yeah, and um, some, um, particularly on the right yeah. of politics, um, they think that don't that's like been, human rights. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's been l- liberally interpreted to to stop certain policies. Yeah, but so you know, the, we have a right wing government now, elected. Yeah, let's see. But it's also the case that judicial reviews don't tend to rule against the government very much. Mm. Um, I think the concern is more that civil servants inside government are often very, very cautious about the possibility of having judicial reviews. Mm. So it's almost like institutional fear of judicial review is causing lots of policies that the government would like to implement not actually being implemented. So I I guess the question is, are we facing a constitutional crisis on both sides of the Atlantic simultaneously? A crisis would be a strong word for the UK, I think. <laughs> I think the US, yes. Constitutional rot? Yeah, definitely a rot in the yeah. uh, US constitution. Because so much of the US is based on um, people not crossing certain boundaries yeah. agreed not to be crossed. Yeah. And uh, Trump doesn't care about that. W- wide around the world, we were mentioning, you know, judiciaries have been the target of a lot of autocratic leaders. Yes. In Poland, the, um, the fr- f- ironically named Freedom and Justice Party... Uh, have been seeking to get rid of a lot of judges who have seen them as the main block on their authoritarian agenda. Yeah. Uh, they made a policy of changing sort of the retiring age that all judges 60 and yes. above had to retire. Which, which is a pretty blatant attack at the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who all happened to be above the time, yeah. retirement age, I think. And yeah. it was around 50% of all judges in the land yeah. suddenly you know, out of a job. Yeah. Such a shame. <laughs> that was for somewhat, and I, I, as far as I understand, that wasn't fully implemented. Or, mm. or it's sort of still being bickered about. I think it's a long-running feud with the EU because the EU keeps on threatening to sanction them yeah. if they um, implement this policy and Poland keeps on being like, but we really want to. Yeah. <laughs> J- judiciary can go from being, you know, giving, being the blockage against abuse of power to being the absolute enabler of power yeah. and giving it the veneer of uh, legitimacy. More positive news in Ecuador, where the uh, current president is trying to undo a lot of the um, attacks on the judiciary by his pre- predecessor. There was a, uh, a council that was um, set up which was seen as overly politicising um, the judiciary. And as um, the powers of that council have been dramatically curbed by the new president, the uh, looking a lot more independent, a lot more solid. Well done, Ecuador. Yeah. All Shining right. a light. So I hope we've done justice to this topic. Aye. And uh, let's move on to less known stories around the world. Okay. First lesser known story is about uh, a topic not many people have heard about. It's called Planet Earth, and been a big report by the WWF uh, that is making the case for action on climate change based on economic reasons. Uh-huh. So now all the greedy, greedy polluters of the corporate world uh, can now have a reason to save the planet. Oh, well, that's good. I've got some statistics for you, Alex. Go for it. Uh, did you know that the decline of natural assets caused by climate change by 2050 will wipe £368 billion a year off global economic growth. Well, now, I mean, beforehand, never cared about climate change. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's, a lot of, there's lots of reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of it wiping out, uh, wiping out food stock, 
mm-hmm. from extreme weather. It's particularly flooding yeah. and the erosions of soils and things like that. Yeah. So a lot of the basic crops that we rely on yeah. could be massively So you're saying it's not just going to make people hungry? It's also going to cost people money. Yes. The people that sell the food oh we need God. are also going to suffer, as well yeah. as the people that need food to eat. Uh, and Thanks. in the UK, for example, the loss of natural uh, coastal protections uh, could lead to, one, ext- extreme flooding mm-hmm. and flooding of agricultural areas, uh, as well as hurting uh, fish, fishing Seems livestock. Bad. Yeah, so I think, yeah, like you say, I was on the fence about this whole save the planet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But now... If we can save three hundred and odd billion pounds a year, that that seems well worth it. Seems good. Yeah. On to Ukrainian cabinet reshuffle. Mm-hmm. Great. Just <laughs> <laughs> waiting for you to say the words. Exactly. So uh, in Ukraine this week, um, the chief of staff of uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky has been dismissed. Um, this is Andriy Bodan. Um, he's a lawyer associated with one of the nation's most powerful oligarchs, um, Kolomoisky. And Kolomoisky controls a TV network and is also involved in the energy sector and airlines. Um, so Kolomoisky uh, used to be a strong ally of Zelensky. It was his money that propelled Zelensky into office in a shocking electoral victory. Yeah. Just a reminder, he was the comedian. Yeah, Zelensky is the comedian. Yeah, yes. the comedian yeah, yeah. who played a president in a comedy show. Yes, and, and the comedy was show was on the channel that um, Kolomoisky mm. um, owns and runs. Yeah. Um, um, so, but there was a dispute over um, Privat Bank, um, which was formerly owned by Kolomoisky and nationalized in 2016 after there was um, a missing $5.5 billion um, from Privat Bank. I hate it when I drop I know, $5.5 right? billion <laughs> you know? dollars out my wallet. Um, so there's uh, pressure from the outside world to investigate it properly. So in order to do that, Zelensky is cutting ties with anybody associated with Kolomoisky. Um, uh, as Bodan is. Um, Bodan has frequently boasted over his influence over Zelensky, um, saying it was his idea for Zelensky to run for office. And there was a leaked tape in September showing some Ukrainian officials discussing a campaign of intimidation against the official formally investigating Fubart Bank. And Bodan was not featured on this tape, but there was a reference to an official called BAY. It's been claimed refers to Bodan. Oh, quite shady then. Indeed. And the new chief of staff um, is Andriy Yermak, who has met several times with Rudy Giuliani. So the idea is that this will improve US-Ukraine relations as well. Ah, and hopefully they can finally get that dirt on Joe Biden's son. Exactly. And that's been right. held up. <laughs> oh, well, speaking of losing millions of things, not dollars, but uh, in Israel, mm-hmm. millions of people data was lost in oh. a huge kind of electoral a hack. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently this was so easy to do, this, uh, I say quote marks, hack of data that I have a quote here. To call it a hack is an insult to professional hackers. <laughs> this is what a software developer told CNN. So basically this was an app to collect people's information in, in the lead up to the national election in Israel. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, there was a security flaw in this app called Elector. And, um, yeah, apparently it was so easy, you didn't even require much technical know-how to access the data, which was people's full names, addresses, and identity numbers of the entire voter registry of the government. Yikes. So it has now been fixed, but those names were, you know, 6.5 million 
It's people's data that's already out there. And uh, the app has also been in circulation and, and used in countries Moldova, China and Russia. So it's looking very positive for uh, this kind of a democratic electoral and electronic future that we're going to. People, a lot of people argue, have argued in the US that we should go back to paper mm. because you can't really hack paper. Or it's very obvious when you do hack paper. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. Famously, uh, one voyage, Roger Stone made his name. Mm. Um, he was responsible, he says, for organising some of the riots in Florida in 2000 with the Hanging Chad scandal. Ah, full circles. Yeah, exactly. Now on to you, what's, what's your link for this story? Uh, there, there is no link. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to uh, El Salvador, where armed soldiers marched into the Congress during a debate over a $109 million loan for security equipment. This was a long-running dispute between the, um, the president and the parliament. Um, the president wanted this uh, money for the armed forces who are struggling with the long-running gang problem in El Salvador. Armed gangs um, have a lot more power in a lot of the country than the government, so they say they want to invest in new equipment for the army. But the Congress said that they wanted more details on how this money was going to be spent and the president refused to give them more details, and then they said they wanted some more time to debate it, and he said, no, you're going to have to come in on a Saturday instead. Oh, no. I know. So he convened the special setting, uh, sitting on a Saturday, but only 22 out of 84 lawmakers showed up, meaning that there wasn't a quorum. So as a result, with the support of the defence minister, the president marched into the chamber with a bunch of armed soldiers. Ooh. It's not um, a good look. Well, I think he thought it was, which is a strange <laughs> thing. Um, Maybe it is it in was El like Salvador. This very like populist thing because he then marched out to a crowd of supporters and gave this big speech about how he could not be stopped and he was the true leader of the people. So ah. it's a bit, a bit worrying. But yeah, the parliament is announcing it as a coup or an attempted coup anyway, and he's saying no, it wasn't. It was fine. Um, <laughs> it was all just fun and games. Yeah. <laughs> You know that you're having a debate free from intimidation when there's armed soldiers sitting in the back, don't yes. you? Yes. So is there any suggestion why, one, the lawmakers were suspicious of this money being spent, and two, why they were too lazy to turn up on a Saturday? I, I think they just wanted more details, really, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of spiralled out of control because they were annoyed when he wanted this rush timetable and annoyed when he wanted this Saturday setting and they were saying, you're interfering with our legislative business. Mm. Stay out. Well, yeah. that's one to watch then. That doesn't sound yeah. like that's uh, <laughs> going to be resolved anytime soon. Bit worrying. Okay. And uh, last one from me. Mm -hmm. We're back in Europe. Italy. Uh, so um, Matteo Salvini, you may remember. Mm. The sort of far-right populist that surprisingly entered the Italian government a few years ago, and uh, he's recently now, now he recently ousted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he was famously anti-immigration mm. and anti-accepting uh, refugees. And so, when he first became interior minister in June 2018, uh, he declared Italy's ports closed to oh. rescue ships. So many ships coming from Africa, particularly Libya, turn yeah. up on the Italian shores because it's really it's actually not a very long journey. And he, he closed those ports and there were subsequently 25 standoffs between rescue vessels and Italian authorities. And this became part of an investigation in the Italian government or to the police because it was seen as a criminal offence. Now, his, his opponents obviously cried foul and said this is politicisation of the judiciary, <laughs> our favourite theme. But in Italy, it seems that the judiciary is somewhat 
politicized when it comes to politicians because uh, politicians have immunity from laws. Convenient. Even ex-ministers, right? Or, uh, you know, even if they're outside wow. the government. Um, I thought Berlusconi had been prosecuted several times. Yes, so what has to be happened is, is the Senate has to vote to raise an individual's immunity in ah, certain cases. So the last time that happened was with Berlusconi. Yeah. He he only got uh, so he only like, got charged nah, on mate. one of his thirty two, uh, <laughs> or convicted on one of his thirty two charges, and ended up just um, doing community service. Or something, yeah, he had a four year sentence, but I don't think he spent very much time. <laughs> just like clearing litter or something. Like that, yeah, yeah, funny that. But oh, it's because he was old, I think. To be fair, yeah, and we're all going to get old. Well, he was old when he was prime minister, but you know, <laughs> people didn't seem to mind. Um, <laughs> Never too old to bunker bunker. Yeah. <laughs> So the Senate, in this case, voted to get rid of Salvini's immunity so he can now go to trial on this case. And strangely, I, I found this a bit strange and I didn't find a clear explanation. It's, it's a, a trial for kidnapping. Kidnapping right? is yeah. the charge. Amazing. <laughs> of these involving these 131 migrants when he stopped them from getting off the ship. Yeah. So it seems a weird, a weird charge, kidnapping, but maybe it is if he's, I guess, if he's holding people that in a place they don't want to be on his orders, you know. That's I mean, kind with of... my great expertise on the Italian legal system. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfectly equipped to comment here. Yes. No. Um, Baghdad? Oh, let's. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Baghdad, where it has snowed for the first time in 20 years. Oh, how magical. Yeah. Um, that's all I've got to say, really. How, for how long again? Sorry. First time in, sorry, 10 years. Sorry, 10 years. Yes. 10 years? Yeah. Um, so there's beautiful pictures out of Baghdad of snow in, on palm trees. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's very nice. Um, Iraq has obviously been gripped by protests, as we discussed in previous episodes mm -hmm. recently. Um, so it comes uh, at a troubling time, but there's been charming pictures of uh, Iraqis throwing snowballs. And <laughs> Okay, and now it's time for our debate topic, which this week uh, will be on the issue of the BBC licence fee and whether it should be decriminalised. Yep. So just to state the facts of the case before we get into the debate, mm -hmm. so currently it's a criminal offence to not pay your licence fee. Yep. And you can get the fine of up to £1,000 for not doing so. Which a lot of people are angry about. Yes, and um, you have to pay the licence fee technically to uh, watch any television uh, and, and access any BBC iPlayer um, content. Yes, it's a tax on the owning of a TV set, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it, there are enforcement officers that have to go around your house to check or inspect if you're watching TV, mm. if you're not paying your licence fee. Um, so it's a bit weird, a weird enforcement. It's not a consistent enforcement, very... Making my case for me, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, uh, it exists in law, yeah. And a lot yeah. of people are proposing that uh, it's a bit absurd. Yeah. So. And I'm one of those people. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be giving the uh, pro case here, um, saying that BBC licence fee should be decriminalised. Essentially, it is absurd in this modern day and age that there's a tax on a piece of furniture funding one of the biggest broadcasters in the world, one of the biggest news organisations in the world. Uh, modern organisations such as Netflix, such as Sky, show that it's very possible to have quality TV, quality drama programmes, quality journalism without um, a tax on a piece of furniture, essentially. Um, most TV watched by younger people isn't even watched on a physical TV set. More and more it's being watched online. 
And the evidence is that young people are simply turning away from the BBC. So why should it be a tax on everybody who owns TV if half the population aren't watching it anymore? Essentially, there are a number of other models that are available. Uh, the government is proposing decriminalising licence fee, not removing it. People would still be obliged to pay it. They just wouldn't face a ridiculous fine of up to £1,000 if they didn't pay it. So I think it's reasonable that most people probably would still pay it, you know? Most people have an inherent deference to the law, an inherent respect for the law. So, you know, I don't think we'd see a radical change in the BBC's fortunes. And even if we did, there's a number of mod other models that are available. We could have a subscription model, or we could just fund it out of general taxation. This is a regressive tax that hits the uh, poor people worst, single mothers especially. Uh, inspectors can only um, inspect if there's somebody in at the time, and single mothers are disproportionately likely to be in at any given point in time, um, meaning they're having to defend themselves in court an awful lot, and they're probably the least able to pay this upon tax. So, yes, um, that is my case. Um, BBC licence fee is archaic. We should consider um, whether um, it's necessary in this day and age. A subscription model or a general taxation model would be far better. Over to you. Okay, very compelling case. Oh, thanks. Uh, a number of flaws in it, though, and I'll, I'll get to them. Uh, but first, I'd just like to say the BBC is a wonderful British institution which should be protected at all costs. Can, can I just break in here? No. <laughs> it's a wonderful institution, as I say, and it's been funded for its whole existence through this licence fee. And um, that the BBC is going through a rough patch at the moment. Trust in it. Uh, belief in it is low, and it needs to be rejuvenated. This is not the time, Alex. This is not the time to start fiddling about with the revenue for the BBC. It is an essential public service. It brings people together. There's a sense of communal watching with the BBC that you don't get with other broadcasters. Yes, of course, young people are turning away from traditional TV as other mediums or other formats of watching entertainment come in. But that doesn't mean we have to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater and get, you know, sort of scrap the whole thing and build from nothing. And another mistake that a lot of people make is that they just sort of think of the BBC as the channels and, and the radio that provides entertainment. But you're forgetting the mass regional news operation that the BBC provides, which is an essential public service for so many people. And the licence fee funds that. To decriminalise, as you said, you think people would just carry on paying, mostly. I think it's rather naive, again from you, Alex. And um, I think most people would go, yeah, you basically you can keep watching... Uh, the BBC or listening to BBC Radio, whatever, and you don't have to pay the hundred and however many pounds it is now. 54. Yeah. Uh, I, obviously, you can tell I don't pay the licence fee. Um, uh, Student. <laughs> um, but you can carry on watching and there'll be no repercussions for it. But would you mind paying 154 pounds, please? Uh, I, I really don't think most people... Uh, or I think a significant share of people would not elect to pay that money. Well, Murray, I think you've made my case for me in a number of ways there. You say that the trust in the BBC is low, um, but I say that's precisely why we need to think about um, rejigging the model. Time and time again, people criticise the BBC. A lot of the criticisms levied at the BBC are unfair. I'll be the first to defend the BBC in a lot of cases. But a lot of them are fair, and the BBC seems completely unable to understand that some of the criticisms are, in fact, fair. 
and legitimate and that they do need to consider some viewer complaints seriously. And at the moment, they are protected from having to take any of these complaints seriously. I think you know, the fact that trust in the BBC is low is evidence that needs a kick up the backside. <laughs> and secondly, I'm a bit puzzled by your fetishization of British media and British TV shows. I mean, if the evidence is that uh, people prefer American TV shows, then again, I think you know, the viewers should be allowed to have what they want and no mm. reason why their money should be forced to go on to BBC shows. Um, well, it's not. So you don't have to pay the license fee if you just watch Netflix. It's only when you connect your TV to uh, receive, I was going to say terrestrial, but like the digital channels. So it's only when you watch live TV. Okay, but what if you want to watch Channel 4 News? Well, then I would say you're probably a rational, intelligent person <laughs> and therefore would also want uh, to be funding a well-resourced BBC. I think, um, I think another point is to risk dropping the revenue of the BBC ma- massively puts at risk serious, important essential investigative journalism mm. that is already having to be drawn back as the BBC tries to save revenue. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do think that we may, we may, we may laugh and joke yeah. about pulling back on the BBC. I, I think we've taken it for granted somewhat. Mm. It's part of the, having a good media in the yeah. UK. And actually, as the right-wing press gets more and more say uh, die hard oh. <laughs> in their in yeah. their political approach mm. and we still need a prominent broadcaster that gives a truly at best attempted impartiality yeah. on serious issues so i agree with that um two responses i think you look at what's happening in the states and there's an, an awful lot of bad trends in the media there's an awful lot of local papers that are shutting down but there's also a lot of positive trends in that the consolidation has meant that a few giants, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, have got a much higher readership than they used to, which means that they are now investing unprecedented amounts into investigative journalism. So that just shows the subscription model can work and does work and is working um, in other places. Yeah, but that's not what the vast majority of Americans watch on their te- TV every day, is it, that stuff? No. Right. The BBC, mm. the BBC is that vehicle for rigorous investigative journalism but then it's brought to mainstream audiences every day yeah i agree and i also want to protect that but then the other thing is that you know having the license fee isn't a perfect shield from political interference um you know you're seeing at the moment huge budget cuts already being imposed on the bbc with the victoria derbyshire show being axed for example it's not it's not it's not quite been imposed as such been imposed by the leadership who have been forced to make budget cuts by political politicians it's still their internal decision, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, if you if you have massive budget cuts, you're going to cut investigative journalism because that's the most expensive thing. Mm. What else are you going to cut? You know, you know cut Gary Lineker. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, would you like closing statement? Sure. The license fee is archaic. We all want a good BBC, but I think a good BBC will be one that has to take into account viewers' concerns and they will do that better if they have to actually make money and look after themselves a bit more. There are a number of other models available, such as a subscription model and a model funded through general taxation. The licence fee doesn't give them as much protection as they would want and as they need. So this makes more sense and doesn't really have many negative drawbacks. And I'd just like to close by saying that the BBC is a national treasure, Alex. And your insinuation that it somehow needs to change and to become a subscription model uh, spits in the face of the principle of a sort of shared 
broadcast experience for a nation, which I think still has huge importance for binding this nation together and giving us uh, some kind of united national spirit. But if it's so valuable, surely people want uh, to pay This for is my it. closing <laughs> statement, I believe. <laughs> I didn't interrupt yours. And because I was talking some sense. <laughs> so we uh, we need to look after it. And the way we look after it is not by experimenting with a decriminalization that would obviously lower revenues and which would hit the quality of programming, which would then lower revenues and so on a downward spiral. And I don't want to see advertisements on BBC. That's how other broadcasters make their money. Uh, I don't want to see a paywall or subscription service because that's inaccessible to people. So the only way we can preserve it is with the license fee, an enforced license fee. And we're going to end on a lighter note, as we as we like to do. <laughs> Alex, uh, you've got a funny story involving uh, things with weird hair. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, no, this is from a new book by two Daily Beast reporters called um, Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington by Asawin Subsang and Lachlan Markey. They report that Trump is obsessed with badgers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So his first chief of staff was a man by the name of Reince Priebus. Mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. And he hailed from Wisconsin, um, which apparently is known as the Badger State. Okay. And is uh, practically synonymous with badgers. And upon being informed that Wisconsin was the Badger State, Trump would apparently repeatedly waste Priebus's time with questions <laughs> about badgers, um, including if they are mean to people, mm-hmm. how they work, and what they eat. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, badgers are surprisingly vicious. Mm-hmm. I had you sound like a man who's uh, I had experience. a family of badgers that lived in my garden yeah. for over 10 years. And you stayed clear? Uh, yeah, they're quite, they're, they're ad- they grow to a very big size. They're quite intimidating. And they're not scared of you at all. They, they run for you. I saw a badger the other day. Well, and one time um, I have a dog, and my mm-hmm. dog uh, is not very smart. So he's obviously hunting these animals in, in our garden. Yeah. And uh, but his tactic was to just stick his sort of, there's this bit, they have these big holes. Mm-hmm. He'd stuck nearly his whole body. His own. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, that just means that his, his head is just sat there waiting for an angry badger with sharp teeth and claws Great. to come along. Yeah. And uh, yeah, one time his whole uh, jaw and sort of oh. neck connecting skin was torn. So they are mean to dogs. Yes, especially okay. if he sticks his big smelly head into their hole. I'll let hole. President Trump know. <laughs> yeah, if I ever meet Trump, I know yeah. I've got some innocent small talk yeah. to break the ice. No, apparently he would um, waste previous time during briefings about foreign and domestic policy by pelting him with questions about badgers. He asked if they were mean to people twice, if they were friendly creatures, and repeatedly asked Priebus if he had any photos of badgers he could show him. <laughs> that is fantastic. So there we go. So I think with that, time to win the show. Yeah, I think it's time to say goodbye. It's been a pleasure to be with you, whoever's listening. And remember, hug a badger. What? Hug a badger. Oh, Be yeah. kind to them. <laughs> 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 <laughs>